listening to the Economy, Land and Climate podcast. I'm Lauren Sneed. In this episode, I'll be talking to Harvard scholar Rosetta Elkin about her work on afforestation and how policymakers would benefit from a better understanding of the individual components of our ecosystem, one single tree rather than forests of hundreds of thousands. Policy tactics are often related to scientific forestry of of a very colonial nature. And sort of being able to untangle that a little bit and look more closely at why these massive projects that come down and sort of land, really, they they sort of land and get superimposed and blanket regional specificity, local knowledge, indigenous ritual. And this is something we have to call out. We spoke about how climate change affects everything, even to the scale of one single tree, and how to deal with climate change as a chronic crisis. In other words, that which we can only begin to tackle with societal behavioural change. I asked Rosetta Elkin about her new book. First, I thank you for inviting me on to this podcast, and I'm happy to share Uh, It's a book that took quite a lot of time and research. Um, I hope it's timely to climate change discussions because it really, uh, in a nutshell, tackles some of the easier solutions that are being proffered to so-called solve major climate disruptions that are typically in dry lands. And so the book really looks at afforestation, which is a a tree planting in otherwise treeless environments. These are typically grasslands, steppes, true deserts, and arid lands more broadly that are remarkably treeless. And so the question the book really asks and, and the content of the book is, why are we planting trees in otherwise treeless biomes? And really the short answer is, you know, to tick a box on some of the environmental agendas without considering the, the local effects of massive tree planting projects on communities that live there that are both biotic and abiotic, human and non-human. Yeah, and that reminds me of a point in the book when you say statistics seem to offer a more passionate relationship at the scale of environmental policy, a means to define the political rather than the biotic. Do you think that the kind of agreements reached at conferences like COP, which often incorporate quotas and targets, that they promote the political rather than the biotic? And by that, I mean they're in the interests of governments rather than the planet and its trees, its seas, its rivers, that those policies are put in place to protect. That's a great question. It's complicated. And I hope I try to untangle some of that about why that is so complicated. In other words... We are passionate about statistics. We love trading statistics as a species without necessarily understanding the earthly condition that's behind some of those numbers. And I think if anything, the the world is begging us to be a little bit more physical and material about our politics. And so I think just being conscious of that, you know, I start the book as, as you probably know, sounds like you've read it, which I'm thrilled. I start the book with a line that is very simple. We are a planting species. We plant trees in in the millions and billions, but nobody's asking the very simple and seemingly apolitical questions, where are those trees being planted, right? And who is planting them? And what species is being planted? And what water sources are those plants drawing from? And so as soon as we're a little bit more conscious of this bias just towards statistics and planting as an operation, then I think the more chance we have of acting passionately, politically, 
rather than economically, again, without sacrificing environmental action, but being a little bit more sensitive to how it unfolds. So what are the strategies that you would outline for how to be more sensitive to how those choices unfold? It sounds simplistic sometimes when I say it out loud, uh, but hopefully your, your readers will understand what's beyond the surface of this. But we really just simply cannot fight deforestation with afforestation. So we are losing something in the realm of, I just had a student uh, look at this. It's something in the realm of like 118 central parks a month in the Amazon. We're losing that per month. And so we can't be taking down old growth, humid biome, multi-species and diverse environments and putting back small, young and hopeful plants in grids in drylands that don't support trees. This is not a one-to-one relationship that we can somehow destroy and add forevermore. A very simple, this is why I say it's simple, is we really need to address deforestation rather than fund massive billion tree planting projects. And what are the differences between afforestation and deforestation that policymakers should be aware of? The landscape itself. You know, we've lost so much our relationship to plants. We are an entirely plant-dependent species, and yet we treat plants as tools, as objects, and as statistics. And this kind of objectification of our ancestors, really, is unacceptable. And so policymakers can take a step back and look at at their lexicon to start with. We need to be growing trees, not planting trees. Being accurate with your language is so important. When planting trees becomes the mandate, then these campaigns go out there and they just count how many trees are planted. They do not count the trees that survive, which are very few in these cases. I would still rather see wide, broad, healthy acacia tree in a village providing shade and fodder and life and relations than see a a kind of highway gridded, imported, heavily mechanized, dripline infused kind of so-called greening project come into a village. And those are our two very viscerally different approaches. We have evidence of how failed the, the approach of Billion Tree programs are. And that's the structure of the book. I look at the historical case, an extant case that's happening right now and one that is future oriented, that is planned. And so these three cases are a way of looking more closely at our environmental intentions across the 20th century, because we're bringing those same assumptions into the 21st century. It's like we haven't learned. Sorry to go on and on, but in each case of these so-called solutions, the so-called problem changes, but the answer is always, let's plant trees, right? Desertification, let's plant trees. Airborne pollution, let's plant trees. The Dust Bowl, let's plant trees. Climate change, let's plant trees. I mean, that can't possibly be the case, right? It cannot be that this is a a totalizing affair. And this insistence is, is really what I try to problematize. Can we go back to that term which you just used, desertification? And I think in one of the first sections, you explain how desertification is often posed as an issue which planting trees can then come and solve. This is because in policymakers' eyes, 
aridity is equated with lifelessness. Can you try to explain to our listeners how this illusion can be dispelled? Humans are reticent to engage in environments that don't support human life, right? We're one species. We have over 300,000 named plant species, for instance, let alone all the microorganisms and all the creatures and the ungulates and everything else that lives in, in and thrives in aridity. As a result, there's a, a kind of a front to, to aridity. Now, that, that being said, I'd like to just wrap that into some of the history of the term desertification. I much prefer to use the term drought because it is an ecological term. Desertification is an invented term by French colonial foresters in 1949. The word appeared in 1949. It is very nascent and oblique. I get into the history, so I'll I'll say it very briefly, but hopefully readers are curious to dive into that chapter, which I wrote in reference to a tree planting project called the Great Green Wall that's planned to to stretch from Jakarta to Djibouti in the sub-Saharan Africa. Desertification was a term used primarily in humid biomes where there is a lot of fecundity, a lot of moisture, and a lot of tree growth as a result. Trees require a certain amount of moisture to get that dense and that broad trees being woody plants, right? I'm talking about woody plants in that case. So in Côte d'Ivoire, in particular, French foresters were seeing that the more they decimated, the more slash and burn that occurred, the less likely it was that plants would come back, that trees would come back after those cycles of slash and burn. And to describe that lack of coming back after that kind of abuse, they described the ground as being desertified becoming a desert. And this term was very craftily reoriented to actual arid zones under French control in the AOC to label areas without trees as potentially sites for planting trees. And so really desertification is the act of decimating of humid biomes so much that it suffers any capacity to enter into a first succession ecologically. It is not a true desert that can be desertified. So this is a a sort of a trick that limits the character of a dryland biome that doesn't support tree life. I don't know if I've answered your question specifically, but I do think it's very interesting that the UN, uh, you mentioned COP before, but these sort of policy tactics are often related to scientific forestry of a, of a very colonial nature and sort of being able to untangle that a little bit and look more closely at why these massive projects that come down and sort of land, really, they, they sort of land and get superimposed and blanket regional specificity, local knowledge, indigenous ritual. And this is something we have to call out. Yeah, because the format for global climate conferences coordinate this huge multilateral effort, which happens at the level of countries, states, big organisations. So you do wonder how that works, as you refer to it, at the scale of one single tree. Now, you quote someone in your book saying, it is hard to imagine all the acronyms and agencies associated with climate finance and repair are all concerned with the same living world. How can we overcome how overcrowded this space has become and the chaos that's been engendered by all the different agencies with such different agendas? 
I think a first step is acknowledging exactly what you described beautifully, that there's a lot of friction in the number of agencies sort of struggling to so-called solve. This word solutions is, is part of the problem. Climate change is a chronic ecological reality. It is not episodic. It gets conflated often. You know, a hurricane is episodic, but hurricanes have always come and they come in cycles. And most of the Earth's biology and human and otherwise has withstood episodic risk. We are used to it. Even drought is episodic. These are conditions that come in and they retreat and they usually disturb in a almost productive way, fire including, right? It just it's a matter of whether or not you're in harm's way. But these are all episodic risks. And cr- climate change is a chronic risk. That means that it endures. It, it doesn't come in and go and create a kind of positive disturbance. It's a slow trickle I like to make the analogy of being sick, right? If you're a human and you're sick and you go to the doctor and you say, oh my gosh, I'm sick. Can you help me? Is there a cure? You could have a cure to an episodic disease, a flu, even chickenpox. But if you go to the doctor and your diagnosis is heart disease, there's no cure. There's no pill. There's no sleep it off. There's no take this or use this ointment. And in, in three weeks, you'll be okay. The diagnosis is you have to lower your stress levels. You have to eat differently. You might have to change your job. You have to exercise more. You have to lose weight. And that's because it's a chronic illness. It stays with you, right? And so you have to change your behavior to meet this new condition. I feel the planet is chronically sick. It's not episodically sick. Episodes can take to solutions. Chronic, you can't take a pill for it. So you have to change your behavior. And now the only reason we would have to change our behavior, again, in the same way as it can be individual, it can be individual like heart disease, if you want to live longer, exercise more, eat differently, lower your stress levels, et cetera, if you want to live longer. You don't have to do any of those things and then you'll likely have a heart attack and die younger. Done, that's your choice. Now, when we have a chronically sick planet, we all have to come together to understand that throwing solutions at individual problems is not changing our behavior. And we have to collectively start to change our behavior. I think a lot of these conferences, you know, the same thing, everybody flies there to have the same discussion. That's not a change of behavior, right? I just see the same behavior pattern over and over and over. And tree planting is another one. It's the same kind of behavior. Oh, let's plant trees and it'll be okay. One of the undercurrents that you might have recognized, Lauren, is this stress on relationships that we need to change our behavior because we want to repair relationships. One way to start is relationships with one another, relationships with the issues, relationship to climate change, relationship to plants. That's really what contours my, my argument. That's the sort of change we need to see at every level. I mean, it sounds like you're moving towards that most controversial of answers to the climate crisis, which is degrowth. Is that what you're saying? I think it's different growth. I don't think it's degrowth. I think it's just different. And changing pathways is something we're very good at. We're very adaptable species. It's really remarkable. It's just that we have to make the switch. There is a lot of hope and a lot of really incredible uh, work being done. I mean, finally, what was it? Three years ago, we finally recognized that 80% of the world's diversity is held on indigenous land. I mean, it took us a long time to figure out that statistic, right? Okay, now we have that. 
let's look at the behavior and the relationship building that is in those traditions and not extract from it, but learn from it. We certainly don't have 80% biodiversity in any other land holding in the world. So there are really incredible examples and models. I would just be so happy for any group to come together and say, we want to grow three trees for this village. That would mean that they don't just invest in planting it, but they invest in caring for it. It's never been harder to grow a tree. It's difficult now. Water resources are scarce or salinity prone. Uh, there's nitrogen in the air. The ground is often decimated or contoured or terraformed in, in some way. And the species themselves have been manipulated to our specialized tastes. I think it's different growth. So are there in instances of moving towards improving those relationships between humans and plants outside of indigenous communities? Definitely. Robin Wall Kimmerer says it beautifully. She says, and, and I don't want to misquote her, but she basically says it's about becoming indigenous. And that, that means knowing your land, right? And treating other creatures and plants as your kin, as your, as your relations. A lot of us do that without necessarily being affiliated with a particular you know, tribe or area. It's a, it's a way of being in the world, right? And as a landscape architect, I would say it has a lot to do with not understanding the land you live with or that supports you locally or regionally or globally. Knowing the land again, having a feeling for the land again is very powerful. So there are examples and micro efforts all over the world. And I think we have to look carefully to those and also not look to them to take them or to extract from them or to try to make them scale up, but to look at them for what they're doing at the scale they're working at, like prairie restoration and grassland restoration in the United States is really needful of human attention and that's labor. And so you can't just say, okay, well, let's make a plan for prairie restoration from Texas to the Canadian border. You would lose the relationship, what we were talking about earlier, right? You would lose that relationship between caring for and maintaining and managing and adapting with the plants um, because it would be a, a mechanized affair very quickly. Um, so recognizing what's working well at a particular scale is I, I think another kind of grow differently that, you know, rather than degrowth, no, I'm not a proponent for degrowth. I, I want, it just depends how you define growth, I suppose. Well, thank you very much for listening. That was Rosetta Elkin, and you can buy her new book, Plant Life, The Entangled Politics of Aforestation, online or from all good bookstores. We've been the Economy, Land and Climate podcast. If you like what you've heard, you can follow us on Twitter at ELC Insight and give our podcast a like for more on economy, land and climate.